Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got a great new voice here today for Spirit in Action, new in that he's recently released only his second book, whereas some of my guests have released dozens of them. But Chad Seals is a fresh blockbuster writer and thinker from the University of Texas in Austin, where he teaches at the School of Liberal Arts and in the Department of Religious Studies. Economics, race, and power structures are central to the book Religion Around Bono, Evangelical Enchantment, and Neoliberal Capitalism. Taking a rock star like Bono and his renowned work for Africa and sorting out the message and the effects of the campaigns for debt relief, the fighting of HIV-AIDS in Africa with the One Campaign, and the Product Red Campaign. You may well want to get into one of his classes at UT in Austin after hearing Chad Seals, who now joins us via Zoom from Texas. Chad, thank you so very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on the show. So how's the temperature down there in Austin, Texas, where you're located? We just had some rain last night, so we're cool this morning, and we're in the 80s the rest of the week, and then likely back up to 90s and more. Since I'm from Wisconsin, could you define cool? Yeah, cool is anything below 90 degrees here. (laughs) (laughs) Anything over 90, I call hell, but uh, that's that's not a theological. We call that normal. (laughs) You in the book refer to your first exposure to really thinking about Bono. You know, after church, people are talking. Could you relate that? It's a great starting point. Yeah, the first time I ever heard of U2 was when I was in the middle school age. And I distinctly remember the church we went to with my family, uh, my parents and my younger brother was First Baptist Church downtown Pensacola, Panhandle of Florida. And I remember one evening after service, walking across the parking lot with my mom, We run into these other two moms who are, um, their kids are a little older than me. And they were in the midst of this conversation about, is the music they're listening to, this band U2, this album, the Joshua Tree album, is it Christian or not? So my mom walked into this conversation and they asked her, and she didn't really, I was too young in a sense. She wasn't, you know, part of the conversation in the sense she didn't have a stake in it. But I just remember from the very beginning that there's this mystery around this band, U2. Are they Christian? Are they not? What does that mean? So it struck me already before I'd even heard of them or listened to the music that there's something different about them than the music that my parents and other parents would typically promote in the evangelical world. So performers like Michael W. Smith back in the 80s would be, you know, no one's questioning whether he's Christian or not. So the fact that parents were worried about it made it a little more interesting for a middle school kid to go find out what's going on. And I was a kid that was invested in sort of finding the uh, sincerity of religion within evangelicalism. So it was a way, ultimately, the more I learned about you 2 to be connected to religious themes, but in a way your parents wouldn't necessarily approve of or at least would be concerned about. So it was a way, ultimately, to rebel without actually having to leave. It wasn't a kind of agnosticism or atheism. It ultimately was a way of being evangelical in a different frame that seemed to rebel against your parents without actually changing anything about your beliefs in themselves. 
So I get the idea that you grew up in a conservative Christian family, and so rebelling was to like anything that walked the line. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. And yeah, there was, of course, the typical ways to rebel, to be drink and smoke and do things your parents didn't approve of. And I took the route of being more reproachful in terms of doctrine and the limitations of theology. So my type of rebellion was is more intellectual in that sense. So you 2 was in a kind of bridge between a secular type of rebellion in which you just went all the way, say, if you're on a spectrum to the left. Like I remember taking a, in high school, we had a theory of knowledge class. And Protagoras's phrase, the man is the measure of all things, was that I said that to my youth minister once, and he just sat and stood stared at me in silence and said, in very kind of cautious tones, no, God is the measure of all things. So there was part of me that later on gravitated more to the philosophical, secular thinkers. But at that time in my life, like you too, was this bridge between the two worlds in which the secular thinkers, like even in high school, read English literature and you'd read these British poets who have all kinds of biblical allusions, whether it's Keats or John Donne, for example. And then we would never talk about that in English class, which struck me as odd. But then when we go to the Bible studies for my conservative Baptist church, we wouldn't talk about any of that artistic stuff or poetic stuff either, even though Bono was able to do both. I mean, we would talk about poetry in the Psalms. And so there, for at that moment, and sort of my religious biography, that you two offered a kind of bridge between the two worlds that seemed really separate in my life between the secular intellectual endeavors of high school and then the more limited forms of thinking within conservative evangelical circles. And when did, for you, you know, when did Chad Seals transition from it's just about theology to this lively concern, it seems, that you have for, let's say, doing good work in the world or having good happen in the world? I I hope I'm not misinterpreting you to say that that is a, a strong draw for you. Yeah, growing up in this evangelical world in which goodness was at the heart, So it literally is a religion of the heart. And now we look around at evangelical support of conservative politics, and a lot of people are baffled by it, including myself, having grown up in it to this extent, what's currently happening. But there's constantly a desire to be good. So even things that are hurtful to other people, like my parents in particular, I mean, I'm thinking specifically about race. So some of the key issues that sort of sparked my change or shift from sort of rebelling against theology and thought to looking at social realities and action was in high school. Two uh, black women in my high school class showed the documentary of Malcolm X. And then there was a uh, one of my high school friends who was, I mean, at the time, the uber libertarian, like the, uh, who, would dr- who would dress, who would wear suits to school with a briefcase and, you know, was ready for free markets and Wall Street, even in senior year of high school. I mean, he just responded after we'd watched Spike Lee's film Michael Malcolm X, responded by the typical lines of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And then I saw my classmate respond to that by crying, explaining her situation, that she takes care of her siblings, that she's going to graduate among the top of her class, go into college. So the, that just pulling up yourself up by your bootstraps doesn't work alone in itself. And so just that sort of personal encounter with an emotional reaction, that was a response. Because I grew up, the, what my high school, my white male friend said in the class was something that was said all the time in my church. So what started, struck me as odd is like, we have this doctrine, we have this theology, both in religious beliefs, but also in politics. Those two things, the evangelical world I grew up in were one and the same. If you're standing for biblical principles, you're standing for the Republican Party. 
and just to see what's the effect of those policies to people who actually live through them. I mean, so that was a spark that led to taking more classes in, in college around ethics. And I started off in civil engineering and I took an ethics class and loved it. And then I couldn't take any more ethics classes in engineering. There was only one. So <laughs> I went over to the philosophy department and started taking more ethics classes. And that led to a course on liberation theology in Latin America. And that was really the turning point was that I could use sociology to study the religion where I came from to sort of show that it's not just some isolated world, but it's connected to a whole notion of history. So that all those things aligned. History plus sociology led to a way of sort of unpacking the world in which I came from. And now you teach in the Department of Religious Studies at University of Texas at Austin. So there's also the religious component. There's more than philosophy, there's a specific religious component. When did you add that in? Yeah, the Religious Studies Department at UT is pretty new for a public university. We were started in 2007, and there's a long history to why that is. We're ha I'm happy to go into it if it's helpful. But the, the bigger picture in terms of religious studies at a public university is that we're non-confessional, non-theological. So we're not teaching religion. We're teaching how to study religion. So it's not in any... I always tell the students, I usually start with a theorist, Emil Durkheim, who said there's no true or false religion. As long as religion is functioning to create moral community, it counts for him as religion. So religion is more than just belief. It's about rituals. It's about practices. It's about habits. And really the power of religion is in our moral communities more than it is what I believe or you believe. So I grew up in a world in which everything was about what I believe and you believe. We try to frame it in that sense as the study of religion is to help us understand how society organizes itself from forces beyond yourself as an individual. And a lot of that organization is something that society sets apart as a god something sacred, something powerful. So we can study anything from UT football to the Christian churches that some of the students grow up in to whether it's temples or mosques or synagogues and just looking at religion more broadly and not just the sort of common sense, what you believe, I believe, or a doctrine, but what we practice collectively. And that includes consumer habits, consumer practices, popular culture, music, fandom, all those things too. It sounds like a lot of fun to me. Let's say a few words about your first book, The Secular Spectacle, Performing Religion in a Southern Town. I looked it up. I haven't read it, but I, I looked it up, and they said that tracing the religious history of Siler City, North Carolina, Chad E. Seals argues that Southern whites cultivated their own regional brand of American secularism and employed it alongside public religious performances to claim and regulate public spaces, and there's more. But when I read that, I said, oh, wow, did he get, get ready and set up for this book, Religion Around Bono? It seems to me you are already marching in this direction. Yeah, one of the things that strike me, I mean, my research is really trying to figure out how when particularly whites in America say that it has nothing to do about race, and then evangelicals will say it has nothing to do about religion, when those two things mean the same thing, then you're on the grounds of a kind of secularism that I was interested in. So the studies of secularism have mainly gravitated towards liberal Protestants who have looked to sort of diffuse the message of Christianity within secular institutions. And so that, that kind of liberal Protestantism defines what religion looks like in courts, what it looks like in government. Um, you can think of the National Cathedral where it's Anglican or Episcopal Church is a sort of paragon or 
of this liberal Protestant secular. So it's a Protestant secular, looks to kind of just diffuse itself and almost have a continuum in which it phases into the secular world. But the world in which I grew up in was much more stark in terms of its binaries, in which I felt like every time someone said it had nothing to do with race, it of course had everything to do with race. This is the world of the 1980s I'm thinking of in particular. (laughs) in which the religious right was rising up on the the idea that they were saying this has nothing at all to do with race, when in fact it's a direct reaction to the 60s and 70s. And you see this in conservative Christian psychologist James Dobson, who goes down to defend putting the Ten Commandments, um, a judge trying to drive it in on the back of his truck, into the courtroom. And Dobson compares white evangelicals to Rosa Parks on the back of the bus, that he says, we too are being discriminated against, we need to learn from the civil rights movement. So that to me was fascinating how this notion of doing exactly the opposite of what you're saying. I mean, earlier we were talking about what are the limits of hypocrisy within religion? Is it hypocritical? It was more than just hypocrisy. It was a kind of political technique. And I found it mostly around not white supremacists in the South. It was mainly practiced by progressives and white progressives. So if you look at a place like Greensboro, North Carolina, one of the most progressive political towns in the South, but the last to racially integrate. So the politicians, the white politicians in Greensboro promised early on after the sit-ins that they would do everything they could to protect blacks, to integrate quickly. And in fact, they're the last city, one of the last cities to racially integrate in the South. So that to me was much a fascinating way of looking at not just white supremacy in a blatant sense, but the white supremacy that's written into progressivism in a way that says it has nothing to do about race, it has nothing to do about religion. It's interesting that you mention the thing about Greensboro. Since there's a Quaker college there, I would think that that would have been a force for racial equalization. Do you know anything about the part that the college there played in either advancing racial equality or assisting in the retention of segregation, Jim Crow, that kind of thing? Yeah, I don't know the particulars of the Quaker involvement in Greensboro. My colleague at UT, Jennifer Graber, has written a book about Quakers in prisons in the antebellum period. And one of the things about even thinking of Quakers and their long activism as abolitionists and being a, a symbol of that, I mean, her work on prisons shows that even religions that have this tendency or gravitate towards equality or the language of defending rights if you take that religion and put it in an institution like an antebellum prison, what you end up, if you're looking for good religion, it ends up corrupting the religion. So that, and her work on Quakers in antebellum prisons showed that pretty quickly Quakers themselves had a cat of nine tails and were whipping prisoners. So even though Quakers wanted to use prisons as rehabilitative, the more control they were given over the institution, the more the institution corrupted their practices. And so that even Quakers were involved in prisons. They're involved in being friends to Native Americans. This is Dr. Graber's work, and I highly recommend it. Her book, Gods of Indian Country, as well as her book on antebellum prisons and Quakers. There's definitely a resistant religion in American history that Quakers are part of. There's a resistant religion among white Catholics, among white Protestants. One of the mentors I had in grad school, Don Matthews, a Southern historian, his father was against lynching in the Midwest and preached against it, was a Methodist minister and was lynched himself. So there's a way in which fighting for racial justice is not just about phenotype, about your skin color, 
which of course that is a huge part of the process. But it, it's about having a form of resistant religion or resistant spirituality that's not particular to any tradition. It can exist within the same tradition. And that's the thing about studying evangelicalism is that it has a radical democratic impulse. In American history, evangelicals were included not just whites, but freed slaves. And I'm talking about the antebellum period in which they had all kinds of different views about society, organized community, what families look like, and were just extremely radical in their egalitarian relationship to God in a way that Quakerism as well. And that just the dynamics of how that resistant religion usually gets overrun by capitalism, about economic systems, about institutions, in which you see white evangelicals taking that radical democratic impulse and basically keeping it to themselves to build their own institutions so that by the 1980s, you can have someone like James Dobson and even Jerry Falwell say, and Falwell was against racial integration. Once it's a federal law, he gets a revelation from a shoeshine guy who's African-American man who says, why can't I go to your church? And Falwell says, well, you're right. Why can't you go to my church? And so you, you have this after the 1960s when it's no longer legally acceptable to support racial segregation. You have white evangelicals reversing course, but the ways they take up family values to, in, in effect, defend the very same racial order that they can't publicly state anymore. So those are the things in which the resistant religion is there. And the system itself as a whole, like capitalism and politics in America, surfaces certain forms of religion as dominant. And here, white evangelicalism has been the dominant political form of religion in the 20th, early 21st century. Well, what does it mean to look for other kinds of spirituality, other kinds of practices that we might be able to either recover or create a new, new types of community? Because in the end, it's arbitrary. What we make as a society, what we define as our morality is something as a group we set apart and we say that's the way things should be. So who gets to speak for the universal? Who gets to speak for everyone? Well, historically, it's been a white guy. I mean, white men have spoken for the universal, but there's movements and there's been constant movements within American history for other voices to resist. And so looking for strands of that resistance is one of the things that fascinates me in terms of studying religious histories. By the way, I didn't mean to take us too far abroad in asking about Guilford College in Greensboro, but it looks to me like your answer gave me a piece that I was missing from the book. And again, folks, the book is Religion Around Bono by Chad Seals, who's with us here today for Spirit in Action. The piece that I hadn't quite put in place has been really nicely elucidated by you, Chad, as you talk about the words that they say and the underlying truth that they're actually supporting in spite of those words. So when you said, when they say it's not about race, but it's all about race underneath, that's very helpful in terms of talking about Bono. And again, the two big issues that I identified from the book, you talk about neoliberalism, which is a number of policies, including economic. And there's also this issue of race in there, racism. Part of it, it looked to me like you were talking about cultural appropriation, but we'll get into that in some depths as we talk about Bono. And again, folks, Chad Seals is a professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and this is his second book he's written, and lots of articles. Any article that you wish you could have me talk about today, Chad, that would also be very relevant to this discussion? The only thing that kind of relates to the conversation around Bono is this notion of corporate chaplaincy, which I've written about. The main issue is how religion is used for or against labor and labor organizing. And one of the things I try to highlight 
is that Bana really will oftentimes reference Dr. King in the name of love and will speak a message, the same message that Dr. King says of love and civil rights. But at the same time, Bono doesn't at all engage what Dr. King's efforts to organize labor. On the eve of his assassination, Dr. King was in Memphis speaking at a sanitation workers' strike and giving direct instructions to those gathered to take your money out of white-owned banks, put them in black-owned banks, don't support Coca-Cola, don't buy from corporations that have segregationist practices. So it had specific examples and specific things to say about economic habits, practices, community, and was organizing labor. All that message is lost with Bono. And looking at corporate chaplaincy, is corporate chaplaincy is when companies hire chaplains to work in their companies. Tyson's Foods, for example, is one of the biggest employers of corporate chaplains. And chaplains take the role of HR. So it's religion in the workplace. It's spirituality in the workplace. So since the 1980s, this has been something that coincides with Bono's rise as a sort of spiritual rock star and his causes in Africa. And in the end, what connects it all is that it's a spirituality without any form of organized labor. So it's individual freedoms, it's free markets, it's contractual labor, but it's not religion in the name of making sure that all employees have fair wages, that all employees have health care, that health care is guaranteed by the government or by the employer. So those things are left out of the conversation. Nelson Mandela spoke of those in terms of getting access to drugs in Africa through generics rather than through name brands, and Bono opposed that. And Bono doesn't speak in the name of Dr. King when it comes to that kind of labor. So that's the evangelicalism I see is sort of speaking about liberty and freedom and religious freedom without any concern for a collective, cooperatives, organized labor. And that's you can't read Dr. King and just gloss over those items. And that's what Bono does, though. What neoliberalism is doing as a political tool and an economic philosophy is filtering out the power of religion to organize us as collectives and focusing more on the feeling of religion to give us connection as individuals and free agents in the market. There's a number of items I think we need to define in some detail, but I wanted to start out here with a portion from the intro to your book. And again, that is Religion Around Bono. Evangelical Enchantment and Neoliberal Capitalism, you state that the book argues that Bono promotes in popular culture and musical form the religion of neoliberal capitalism. And then you go on to state, and this is significant too, To be clear, Bono tries to overcome organized religion, and he denounces neoliberal policies. So he's denouncing the policies at the same time that he effectually is supporting neoliberal policies, is what I think you're saying. And one of the things I think we need to define is what's religion versus secularism, because it's really common these days, and many listeners of the Spirit in Action program, I think probably would say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And so they kind of fit with this way that Bono speaks in his music, right? So what divides religion from spirituality in your book? Yeah, that's a great question. The first thing I do as studying religion is I do take this notion from Emile Durkheim, the founding sociologist of religion in certain ways, that Religion is, in a sense, it's wherever the sacred is set apart, some pow- something powerful set apart. So any moral communities, communities that are built around the sacred count as religion. So these moral communities. So it's not that religion is in a church, a synagogue, or mosque, 
where religion can be in a football stadium. Um, it can, you see in mascots, I'm at the University of Texas, so Bevo is this special, he's not just a special cow, the special steer who's set apart and then has handlers. Not everyone can touch Bevo. So the identity of the University of Texas is a kind of religion. It's a moral community that's based on distinctions between sacred and profane. And then we come to be part of that moral community when we consume the symbol that stands for the group, the totem. So when we're consuming that object, we're becoming part of that community. In our world, we our major forms of consumption are through commodities, through brands. So we become part of brands, whether it's through the music we listen to, the shoes that we buy. And so we become part of moral communities through our actual consumption of products. But more anecdotally, like growing up in this Baptist tradition in which it struck me as we would say, well, religion is in what we do over here in church. When in fact, well, evangelicals themselves, we don't have religion, we have faith. And actually what religion is, is all that, that ritual stuff that Catholics do. We don't have that, we have faith. So they would get, as Protestantism sort of gets rid of materiality or tries to, so Protestantism reacts to Catholicism by getting rid of icons. It says it's getting rid of ritual. It really streamlines the Eucharist to the point it's so efficient, it seems like you're now taking a Lunchable, like you're, you're peeling up your wafer on a, pe- a piece of plastic over a plastic cup, and you're doing it really quickly and really efficiently, which is all part of industrialization. So it just fascinated me. Well, you're saying religion, we're not doing it in our church, but then we'll go to a barbecue. And it seemed like the, the kind of enthusiasm would come up as a group, as a collective, more in the barbecue than it would within the service itself in the Eucharist. And there's others who have written on this. So if you look at, say, what happens outside of the religion, well, historians said in the South, because lynching was not happening inside a church, that it doesn't count as religion. And so Don Matthews, who studied lynching, saw that, well, lynchings are happening in the South in the counties with the highest religious affiliation, with the highest church practices, the highest church affiliation. But historians are saying, no, that doesn't count as religion because it's happening outside the church. So if you look at the history of lynching, it's a type of religious, Southern religious right. And you can say that American religion broadly is built on, you say, a sacred division between sacred and profane. It's built on race. So the racial division between black and white that's built in from the beginnings in slavery is at the bottom of American religion broadly. And so that's a more complicated history. But if you go, the connection to Bono is, Bono is saying to his listeners, that his audience, that he's resisting organized religion. He doesn't want to be organized by the church or doesn't want the church telling him what to do. To this day, he'll take his family to a service, but only a church building, but only after the service is over. He won't go into that service while it's going on. So there's this way in which he's promoting a resistance to religion. And the spiritual but not religious movement, I think it's important to recognize is by many people who claim to be spiritual but not religious, a type of frustration with the religion they grew up with. Again, this is the resistant aspect of the religion. To be spiritual but not religious is to say, I'm fed up with my parents' or grandparents' religion. I want to overcome organized religion. But I think one of the ironies or unintended consequences, or however you want to put it, or maybe Bono is intentional about it, I don't know, is to create a new religious form outside of that organized religion that is, in fact, in some ways, more um, limiting or more constricting, you just don't feel it. Like you don't, you feel like you're being liberated from the organized religion, but in fact, you begin to surveil yourself. You begin to have religion of another form. So, and if you look at the history from lynching to blackface minstrelsy as entertainment, one of the things the religion around Bono is looking at is how we as consumers get the feeling of we're helping those in need in Africa 
when in fact we're consuming a kind of in popular cultural form, a blackface minstrelsy that's taking the power of African voices and then filtering them through a white guy from Ireland to speak on behalf of them, to perform the power of resistance. That's the, So here, in a, if we had to summarize it all, what Spiritual But Not Religious is doing is it, it's an attempt to take the power of resistance of those who have been oppressed, to take that and to put it back against religion. But then the Spiritual But Not Religious movement is most likely consumed by white middle-class folks. So what does it mean for white middle-class folks to want to feel like they're being resistant? So what are they looking for? In our current political moment, there's two options. There's the brand of Trump, which is this brand of open bigotry and that you can, it's totally fine now to be oppressive in itself. And then there's the spiritual but not religious brand that's looking to consume spirituality as a form of liberation of resistance to religion, when in fact it's keeping the same patterns of speaking, white people speaking on behalf of African needs. It's a kind of, in Christian terms, a missionary impulse to save the other. But that the force of authority that comes from that is looking to really to voices that are of dissent, but in fact reinforce this long pattern of, and I can go through particulars, of a kind of oppressive religion by another name. I'm going to quibble with you about some of the points that you made, or at least seek elucidation on your side. But first, I wanted to check this religious but not spiritual. There's, there's people who would call themselves non-religious. I think of communism in particular. I think it matches your definition that you were using of performing religion, if you will, communism. And I also think of, at least you know, 100 years ago, labor unions. For me, that represents a kind of religious enactment. My personal perspective is in the United States, Christianity is not the biggest religion, but the biggest religion is maybe what you'd call materialism or worship of technology. Technology will save us kind of thing. I just love your perspective on those points. Yeah, those are all great points to make. One of the big questions I have that I can't really answer in a sense is, can we escape religion in its entirety? So you can escape your church, maybe, and you could find a new religious tradition. If, you, if I grew up evangelical in a Southern Baptist church and found Buddhism or Hinduism to be more relevant to my spirituality, I could see myself as escaping that religious fact. So it's an attempt to get out of there. Um, but then how is that brought to you or how is that presented to you? That's another separate question. So what does it mean to try to escape religion? Well, obviously, communism is a perfect example because it targets religion directly it tries to get beyond it, tries to escape it. But one of the things early on they learned, the Communist Party learned while it's creating this new nation state, is that if you don't have rituals for birth and for death and for marriage, for weddings, then you can't have these communities. So the Communist Party literally, once they get rid of the church, they have to remake these rituals. So they make these communist rituals around wedding ceremonies. They make up funeral ceremonies. And it's completely all constructed And what's fascinating is what the red campaign does that Bono is doing, which is to brand products as red, is intentionally a response to the communist creation of red religion. It's red capitalism now. So it's an intentional way of creating a kind of religion out of commodity consumption in which products are branded as red and the proceeds go to causes in Africa. So even as you're trying to escape religion, The point, and Durkheim's point is, you can't have society without religion. Religion is the very idea of society. So as a scholar who studies religion, that's what I'm after. I'm interested in studying what at the basis of who we are as a society is a religious idea. 
And the world we live in is one of capitalism, now neoliberal capitalism, of free markets, and corporations have more rights than human citizens. So what does that mean? What's the religious idea that makes that possible? Well, you see in the Hobby Lobby case, it's a kind of evangelicalism. You don't get that religious idea that corporations have more rights than individual workers that without the religious notion of evangelicals and free markets. So that's, for me, the fascinating thing of where religion is and how do you resist religion. Can you ever get past religion? Labor unions have to have their own rituals. So if you look at, the, for example, my colleague Chip Callahan is authoring an article on the Wobblies, and the Wobblies were resistant. They're a secular group. They would never say, we are religious. But they took Christian hymns. They took Christian songs. They reappropriated them in protest in the streets. And so if, even if you look at artists like Bob Dylan, what Bob Dylan is doing is a very trickster character of taking biblical references, folk traditions, repurposing them for his own sort of artistic creativity. The thing to keep in mind is there's never a pure religion. There's never a pure tradition. To come to any point about religion and justice has to begin with the assumption that religion is an arbitrary social construction, which means it's not set in stone. There's no such thing as an originalist constitution. The we the people was never included blacks and women at the beginning of the United States. So we have to see these documents, whether it's in our national history or whether it's in our religious traditions, is something that are living, that we as a society come to choose what we think is important, which means that it can change. It means it's not set in stone. So family values is not a ubiquitous, universal, historical essence. It's something that society sets apart as arbitrary. I think I would love sitting in your lectures at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of Religious Studies. Folks, we're with Chad Seals today for Spirit in Action. He's the author of a new book, Religion Around Bono, subtitled Evangelical Enchantment and Neoliberal Capitalism. And we're going to talk more about that. But first, I have to remind you that our website is northernspiritradio.org. And on our site, we've got all of our guests of the last 15 years programs, links to them. So you'll find links to Chad and to his book, Religion Around Bono. There's also a place for you to post comments. And I really highly encourage you. And I actually think that Chad should require every one of his students to comment on this interview on my website. NordenSpiritRadio.org and rate it. And teachers get rated periodically. I assume they do it at university uh, in there in Austin, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we're rated quite often. They attach our salary to the ratings too. <laughs> well, I think they should all post a comment on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website, and I'd also remind all our listeners across the country that there is a donate button on our website. That's how we support this full-time work. Even more important, though, than supporting us, I would say support your local media. In particular, I'm thinking here of your community radio stations providing alternative voice. I don't know down in Austin which programs carry things like Democracy Now! And so please support those kinds of stations, that alternative media. It's so valuable because so much of our media, I think that right now there's something like six corporations that own 90% of the media in the United States. And it just means that as we talk about things like neoliberalism, the voices are being channeled through a very narrow channel of controllers who determine what comes over the media in this country. But anyway, we are speaking with Chad Seals, the book Religion Around Bono, Evangelical Enchantment and Neoliberal Capitalism. I asked you to define the difference between religion and spirituality. 
of one of the key things that you talk about in the book, Chad, is not evangelism, but evangelicalism. And would you please define what that word means for me? Because it's very relevant to how Bono performs. Yeah, this is a good question to ask, Mark. What I'm really interested in is evangelicalism in its cultural form. A lot of scholars have looked to evangelical history, pointing to doctrines and church history. And so you would think of evangelicals as Jerry Falwell, Billy Graham, James Dobson, early revivalists, George Whitfield, uh, Charles Finney. So that history is important, and I engage that history. And it's a history that says evangelicalism is really just inheritors of Western European revival traditions. So you think of Protestantism as resisting Catholicism, as seeing itself as reforming it, as turning it away from the office charisma of the priest to the prophetic charisma of the revivalist, the minister, the preacher. And then in its most radical forms, evangelical Protestantism says, well, the preacher, the revivalist doesn't have to go to seminary. They don't have to be trained. They just have to have a relationship with God. So Protestantism swings this pendulum away from organized the authority of the institution, the church, to the authority of the preacher, the charismatic prophet. And Bono in that spectrum is closer to the revivalist. His authority is based on his ability to be charismatic as a rock star and not whether, you know, he's not a priest in a church by any means. And a lot of his listeners, um, surprising amount, really in the U.S., not so much in Ireland, but in the U.S., see him not just as a prophet or like a prophet, but actually a prophet and prophetic. So that struck me as positioning Bono within that evangelical history makes sense. And then many have recognized that. Bono's been friends with Billy Graham. He's friends with lots of evangelicals in the sense that he engages them in conversation. But he doesn't make his music evangelical in the way that confessional evangelicals would. So he's secularizing in the sense he's taking that evangelical history and putting it in popular culture. It's not where he's saying, come to my concerts, I want you to believe in Jesus, like Billy Graham did and these big auditoriums, he's saying, come to my concerts, I want you to convert to my causes in Africa. So it's a kind of conversion of a secular sense. It's not to whether you believe or not, and whatever religious or spiritual practice you have is is Bono doesn't care what it is. For him, Jesus is the way, but he's not going to tell you that's the only way. So what I'm interested in, the evangelicalism of neoliberal capitalism, is evangelicalism is really rooted in or based in the good news of salvation. So Jesus can save your soul. And if you don't, your consequence is going to hell in its most you know, severe forms. So it's a salvation of soul that's about life and death in eternal sense. And what Bono does is take that evangelicalism of life and death in a moral sense with yourself and your soul and turn it into an economic choice. So your choice as a consumer will now have life and death consequences. So that's the religion of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is just an economic philosophy of free markets, deregulation, privatization of public goods and services, basically making corporations the medium of moral goods in the globe. And then he's saying that if you don't act as a consumer that chooses the morally good product, then Africans will die. So the life and death consequence is the religious part of this economic philosophy that is neoliberalism. One of the comments you make in the book, Chad, is that religion transforms the I into the we. And you also say neoliberalism makes it seem that religion as spirituality is just about you. And one of the issues I've had, and maybe it goes hand in hand with neoliberalism as performed in the United States, 
but this individualism that, you know, I'm not part of a church. I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not part of a church, even though I've got my devotion to my brands, if you will, that, as you say, religion transforms the I into the we. Are you also saying that neoliberalism isolates people from one another in terms of community, or is it that they are truly a religious community? It's just that the Pope is the kinds of athletic sneakers you wear. Yeah, this is an interesting point. I mean, the sense in which it's very similar to evangelicalism, if you took it, I mean, in its most fundamentalist form, evangelicalism is radically democratic. Everyone's equal under under the side of God. Everyone has an equal relationship to God, a spiritual relationship to the divine. So if it was actually practiced that way, then there would be no hierarchy. So if we're all spiritually equal, then the religion comes in. If you look, say, the history of slavery, or even at the Reformation, when Luther was speaking against it, trying to reform Catholicism and saying we're all equal under the side of God, we all have direct access to God, well, peasants were listening to him. And the peasants showed up at his door and said, we hear your sermons, we hear what you're saying, we're ready to revolt. Because if we're all spiritually equal, that landowner is just like us, and that landowner shouldn't own any property. We should be all equal. We should be radically equal. And Luther said, hey, 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 you heard me wrong there. What I meant is spiritually equal in the next life. And so that's the religion of it, is that it's taking spiritual equality, the potential of spiritual equality in this life, and postponing it to the next life. Same thing happens with slavery. When the Church of England starts sending missionaries to slaves in the Americas, the slave owners are very suspicious. And the reason being, of course, they don't want to convert slaves to Christianity. They would be enslaving fellow Christians. And so the church says, we don't mean spiritually equal such that you have to emancipate your slaves to liberate them, to free them and no longer own them in bondage. We mean spirituality as equality in the next life. So we'll postpone it to the next life. And so neoliberalism is doing that. It's not economic equality in the present. It's economic equality in the future. So everything's based on entrepreneurship. It's based on the freedom to acquire your wealth in the future. But we're not going to give everyone the same equal healthcare access. We're going to postpone that to the future. So there's this way in which the radical equality of a spiritual message in which we're all the same in the sights of the divine or relationship to the divine is then given a class distinction in which rich people have healthcare and poor people don't. And so that class distinction erodes any kind of sense of the promises of spiritual equality in a material form. That's what I'm trying to get at at what's happening with neoliberalism is that it's postponing the quality to the future and it's giving the illusion or the feeling of the freedoms of which we're all the same. And the example that I think works really well to illustrate how that's happening in terms of economic policy is if you look at South Africa, Bono goes there to promote the World Cup when the World Cup is in South Africa. He sings with the Soweto Gospel Choir, and he'd done that before on Rattle and Hum. He sang with the Harlem Gospel Choir. But the residents of Soweto at that very moment that he's singing with the Soweto Gospel Choir are unable to afford electricity. So the very electricity company, the power company, ESCOM, is being privatized after apartheid. During apartheid, electricity was only given to white consumers And during that time, it had all kinds of economic protections to keep the price low enough that everyone could basically afford it. Then after apartheid, access to electricity is opened up. So neoliberalism in that moment is progressive. It feels like now everyone has access to electricity. Same pattern happens in the United States after the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s. Everyone has access to education. What happens? 
white people pull their kids out of schools and send them to the suburbs. They start having their schools around malls and Chick-fil-A's. They don't have them in downtown anymore, the white flight from urban areas. So everyone has access to schools, but they're not equal anymore. They're not equal in the same sense. So now everyone in South Africa has access to electricity, but the prices skyrocket because there's no longer market protections for ESCOM. So under neoliberal policies that Bono promotes through Jeffrey Sachs and others, promoting this notion of free markets and entrepreneurship and bringing the global market to Africa is privatizes the electricity companies so that the only way they can survive without market protections is to do one thing, and that's raise prices of the commodity, to raise prices of electricity. So even though blacks in South Africa have access to electricity, they can't afford it. And when they don't pay their bills, the company cuts off their electricity And so there's a protest group that organizes, and what they do is go around and they legally reconnect consumers in Soweto, and then they're shot at. They become, so at another form of protest, they cut off electricity to politicians to show them what it means to lose power. So those are the real effects of the neoliberal policies. So on the one hand, they're totally progressive. They're opening up the market to everyone, but they're doing it in the terms that the only way you have access to market goods and services is if you can afford it. So it's a new form of discrimination through class, more so than it is race in itself. Maybe this is a good point for me to at least gently challenge what you're saying about that. So what is the solution for South Africa? They haven't got the money. They can't support electricity for everyone. Instead of rationing it only to the preferred hierarchy, the whites is, as it used to be, what is the solution in terms of providing power to the people? And I don't have the answers to maybe South Africa in itself, but just the neoliberal policies overall since the 1980s, what the solution is, is to bolster public goods and services through the state. So what has happened since the 1980s is that we see it in direct impact in public education and the public housing and to housing for persons who are homeless, access to health care. We're in the midst of a pandemic in which our economy is not set up to support people in the midst of a pandemic. So what is the solution? The solution is more collectives, more cooperatives, literally a more socialism in a democratic sense in which there's guarantees for all citizens that they're not going to go hungry, they're going to have housing, they're going to have health care. If you don't have those safety nets in place, what happens is in a more free market entrepreneurial model is that some people do succeed and capitalism does work. It just doesn't work for everybody. And that was Dr. King's point is that if it's a class difference. It's those who can afford it have access to public goods and services. So the public itself has to be reinvested into, and that's a kind of investment into infrastructure. And what corporations have done is filter off tax money. If you look at higher ed in the U.S. as well as just secondary education, and Wisconsin is a perfect example. If you look at what's happened to the Wisconsin public education system, you're taking tax money and then filtering it and siphoning it off to private corporations, whether it's through testing whether it's through getting rid of tenured faculty at these institutions that have been bedrocks for building public infrastructure in the state. So that's the solution. The solution is to reinvest in the public because the government is the public. It's not private corporations. But what has happened since the 1980s in Citizens United and the neoliberal global world is that multinational corporations have more rights than citizens do in, in a collective sense. I've got a problem, Chad, in that there are so many vivacious, wonderful, enthralling ideas that are brought up in your book, Religion Around Bono, Evangelical Enchantment and Neoliberal Capitalism, that we can't get to them all. 
I think I want to grab one or two strands to finish off our interview and then just leave people to go get the book Religion Around Bono and delve into these ideas more deeply. One question I had, which I just, for some reason, I've spaced out. When did Bono actually pick up his African advocacy? He picks it up really in the 1980s when U2 comes on the scene through Live Aid. So through the event that Bob Geldof helps organize in which tons of musicians of the 80s are there in London and it's broadcast live on MTV. His first connection to Africa is through Bob Geldof, which is ultimately through evangelical missionary work in Africa, particularly World Vision. So it connects Bob Geldof and then Bono to Africa in the 80s. Then Bono returns later on in the late 90s to work on his causes in Africa, drop the debt campaign, and then later puts together the one.org NGO or nonprofit that's really connected to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So he becomes to Africa early on in the 80s and returns to it in a musical career sense after the sort of Euro pop experiments that U2 does, and then returns really on the Elevation tour. And that album, All That You Can't Leave Behind, is a kind of transparency that sees itself as returning in some ways to the causes of Africa. You have particular criticism for the Product Red campaign that he was part of. Could you explain a few words about that? Yeah, the Product Red campaign is this program that Bono comes up with to brand certain products as red. And you might have seen them around. It's not as popular as it was, say, 10 years ago. But like a Starbucks tumbler as red or Beats by Dre as red. It still exists. And there's Red campaign website. Early on, they had a values calculator in which you could go on their website. And if you bought, say, a Prada handbag, it would say you just saved five African lives. So they don't have that direct literal connection. Now it's like a certain number of um, days of um, life-saving drugs, antiretroviral drugs. But the goal of the Red Campaign is to say, well, consumers are going to buy stuff anyway. Let's just make it a morally superior brand, a good brand that goes and helps people in Africa. The criticism of it is that it's very unclear how much money is involved, what money goes to Africa. We know it does do some in this, quote, good things in Africa. But if you look at it, for example, a case of, say, a mining company in Africa that I would think should be giving its workers health care, and instead of the mining company paying for the health care of its workers, it takes proceeds from the Red Campaign to buy mosquito nets for malaria or to distribute drugs, and uses those proceeds from the Red Campaign that ultimately subsidize their profits. So the corporation's not paying for the health care of its workers. It's using the goodwill, the good hearts of American or Western consumers that are, in the end, subsidizing the profits of an expense that is really should be coming from the mining company's own profit measures or should be the government taxing that company. So that's my, the criticism of the Red Campaign is that it's really, it's not changing the structures or the systems that cause poverty. It's alleviating poverty through corporate gift. Again, there's so much that we could talk about, Chad, that I, I'd love to talk about. And I have my own experience on the ground in Africa, although it's all 40 years in the past now for me, because I was there the end of the 1970s for two years. And I saw some of the complexities of how foreign aid is delivered, so much of it military, which is not much use to the people. It's usually useful to, in terms of propping up governments that the U.S. finds convenient for maybe for its corporations. And so I have all kinds of criticism about that. But I also found that even when there is aid that's theoretically good, that the local culture would 
make it difficult to implement for the good of the people. So, for instance, the chief in the village where I lived, he could take the aid and he could spend it where he wanted to. It's not like democracy of thought or that everybody was considered equal was their thoughts on the ground. And so uh, there's tremendous complexities in it that you at least start to deal with in religion around Bono. Do you have any last comments before we go out about that? Uh, That's a good point to bring up in the sense of that the religion around Bono is issues in Africa are so vast and complex that the project of religion around Bono is not in a sense trying to capture all those what is really focused on is how fans of Bono, consumers of the brand of U2 and Bono, come to believe that they're doing something good without oftentimes we don't know. Like you had an experience in Africa being there physically, but we oftentimes don't know what's actually happening on the ground. So the common theme to sort of sum it all up is that Bono has adjusted to the criticisms of aid and the old forms, has adapted a new entrepreneurial model, but has consistently refused to stop intervening. So has consistently refused, even though he's saying he's listening to African voices, to stop speaking on behalf of Africans. So the one major theme of the West is constant intervention in Africa. It has taken resources out of Africa. We know this is a historical fact through colonialism. It has continued to, corporations still extract resources from Africa. So what does it mean when the voice, a religious voice, that is all for Western intervention to continue if the history has shown us over and over that it just leads to greater resource extraction. And lastly, I think the major issue that's going to define sort of the future of that Western intervention is through agricultural reform in Africa. And Bono's model of agricultural reform through Jeffrey Sachs is looking at Monsanto, now Bayer, as the engine of that reform. So what does it look like when the engine of agricultural reform is not from the local farming communities, it's not from the ground up, It's from a multinational corporation who has private property ownership at stake with the seeds it distributes. So if you look at a place like Haiti, what did they do in response to Monsanto's goodwill? They burn the seed. So there is resistant religion out there. There is resistant economic practices. And then there's another story to be written and talked about in terms of what that looks like on the ground. Well, I'll wait for you to write that. I'm pretty sure it's your next task. <laughs> Folks, we've been speaking with Chad Seals. He is professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of Religion Around Bono, Evangelical Enchantment, and Neoliberal Capitalism. And I'm so thankful that you're delving deep with this. I only wish we could continue for another hour. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thanks so much, Mark. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Folks, the link for Religion Around Bono is on site, including one to, a link directly to Chad. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.